to The Outpost, Liberal Arts in the Last Frontier, a podcast exploring classical education in philosophy and praxis, and highlighting the work of students at Holy Rosary Academy, Alaska's only K-12 Catholic classical school. In today's episode, I sit down with our principal and vice principal to discuss how Holy Rosary got started and the gifts and challenges of educating classically. If you like what we're doing, become a patron at patreon.com slash theoutpostak and be a part of our mission. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, so I'm sitting here with our principal and vice principal. Would you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about how you found your way to Holy Rosary? I'm Lisa Williams. I'm the principal at Holy Rosary Academy. We came to Alaska in 2000, and I had young children, and I knew I was looking for a strong Catholic and uh, classical school. We taught here initially. I was a high school teacher, and then I came back to teach in the elementary after getting my master's degree. And you also have a very interesting background in the military. Yes, I was a Marine Intelligence Officer. I had uh, I attended Georgetown University. I was in the School of Foreign Service. And I loved my career in the military, but then uh, left the military to raise our family and came to Alaska. I'm Austin Welsh. I'm the vice principal at Holy Rosary. And I was born in Dayton, Ohio, and I moved uh, around in the Midwest several times as growing up. I went to college at Thomas Aquinas College, and in, at this school I really fell in love with the great books and classical education and so on. And after I graduated, I had some friends here at Holy Rosary who were teaching at the time, and uh, they uh, suggested that I come and teach up here, and so I did. And I, I didn't think I would stay initially, but now I've I've been teaching here for for nine years. This is my tenth year, and I'm my second year as vice principal. Talk a little bit about the history of the school, if you would, because it's a slightly unconventional, not a typical school startup story. So the school was founded by a homeschooling family, the Hickel family, and I think it was a group of about ten other families. Initially, they were it was a traditional educational style and then it became classical around 2000 2003 with the influx of quite a few of the teaching staff from Thompson Aquinas College and then it, the classical curriculum was really developed by Catherine Newmeyer and the foundations for the classical curriculum were laid during I'd say around 2010 right around when Mr. Welsh got here and then I think it's been solidified over the last decade so that it's, it's going to stay and remain traditional Catholic, but then also classical. One of the things that I really love about uh, when I first came here and learned that it had been started by a group of families and that we were occupying the site of this Hickel family homestead and that our, our chapel is built in this old uh, home was that it really seemed to me that the school was really rooted in a kind of family atmosphere and family environment. And it just seemed so organic and natural. And the school is kind of an extension of the family anyway. It just seemed very fitting that we have, you know, a home on our campus. Even to this day, we allow, um, we have quite a few homeschool families that uh, are part-time students, and so we incorporate the, the classical curriculum into the family's curriculum, and it's a very natural and organic process. Okay, so the school developed, kind of grew into this classical identity. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what exactly does that mean, because there's this huge movement of the classical renewal in education, and you know, people like to talk about it a lot, but what does it, what does it actually mean? Yeah, so you're you're right. It's it's one of these things that um, you know many people speak about, and sometimes it's a little hard to pin down exactly what it is that we're talking about. And so I, I think it's it's an important question. So I think it's helpful if we think about 
classical education, first of all, in terms of its of its goals. So, in general, the goal of classical education is for students to be able to consider the kind of the greatest ideas that have been thought, and in, regardless of the particular topic or subject, so in math, science, literature, philosophy, theology, regardless of what you're talking about, what are the, what are the greatest ideas that have been have been thought, and so in so doing that they are able to know the truth and and love the truth in the end. I think that's kind of the the main goal is that uh, we're we're coming to know and, lo- and love the truth. And so you think to yourself, okay, that's 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 very nice. It sounds uh, a little bit lofty, a little bit vague. What what does that look like concretely? And so I think if we look, work backwards a little bit from that that goal, we we'll start to see what's going to be required. So if we're going to be considering the greatest ideas, what we need to be doing is preparing the students, especially for elementary and high school ages. Uh, we need to prepare them to read well, to to think well, to and to discuss well, and finally to be able to take their thoughts, put them together, and and to write well. So these these are the, the, the kind of preparations that we're going to be giving them during their especially elementary years, but also all the way through high school are going to be things that are really training them how to think and communicate. And so this is going to be a little bit different depending on the age of the students. So at the younger grades, the education is not going to look so different from what we might call sort of typical traditional uh, education. But there is going to be an emphasis on the students you know, thinking for themselves and being able to craft arguments and discuss with other students, again, depending on their age and the grade. They'll also probably be engaging with certain texts, like uh, maybe the children's Homer or something like this, and certain classic texts that they'll be uh, slowly becoming familiar with, and and really educated in such a way that they that they really love to learn to read and think and discuss on their own as much as possible. Now, as they get older, the curriculum and the the project becomes a little more, I think, clearly defined and, and sort of more unique. And so, as as the students move into junior high and high school, they're going to be engaging more with the primary texts themselves. So, um, ninth grade, we read, you know, we're reading, you know, the Odyssey, and it's it's not a a secondary source. It's not somebody's synopsis of the book. It's it, Homer himself. And they'll also be engaging the text and, and the, the other students' ideas in uh, long discussions and seminar discussions and, and really answering and considering a lot of really challenging questions in those, in those discussions. They'll also probably be studying some Latin, maybe some Greek, perhaps a little later. In mathematics, they'll probably be demonstrating different mathematical proofs they'll study logic, they'll be writing papers to synthesize all these ideas, and um, and they'll be able to see and start considering, especially as they get older, maybe, you know, uh, as upper upperclassmen, juniors and seniors, they'll be able to start seeing a lot of the connections between the subjects. So when they're uh, studying theology, they'll, we, they might see connections to other things that might not seem related, like mathematics or philosophy and science to have a lot of, a lot of connections as well. So and they'll see as they get older that uh, mathematics leads to the sciences, and then sciences to philosophy, and philosophy finally to theology. And so there's a there's a there's a, a direct directedness and integration of all the different things that they're going to be studying. Now I, I think it's there's a couple important points that that I think are imp- helpful to add here. So they're still going to be studying like your typical subjects. They're still going to be studying algebra, and trigonometry, biology, chemistry, and so on. All all the kind of normal normal things, but 
there's going to be a focus on the discussion of the concepts they're learning and integrating them with the other classes and other subjects. And then there will also be a sort of movement towards principles of each of the subjects. So it's not just about, well, here's some equations, they're very interesting, let's solve problems with them. They will be doing that, but we're also going to be considering as best we can the, say, the principles of mathematics or science. And you might be thinking, well, this sounds like a giant project. How could they ever can finish this through high school? And the answer is they, they can't, and that's sort of part of it. They're, you know, the idea is that they're meant to go on college and beyond. It's really, it's really a journey for life. It's not just a, something that they finish here and they move on and do something else. And it's supposed to be fun, too, you know. And it is enjoyable. You know, many of our students, they, they really do enjoy being able to have these discussions and consider a lot of these really thought-provoking questions about the different works they read. Yeah, if it's if you're not if it's not fun, at least you know through through a large part of it, then uh, then we're doing something wrong. So. And I think that's the delightful part about the K through 12 education is that you see that wonder, the joy in discovering creation and the little ones. But you can go into a 12th grade seminar and see that joy and delight in reading a great work of literature as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that I have enjoyed most seeing is when students discover, not even answer, like a lot of times in education you're sort of tossed this softball of a question by the teacher and then the teacher gives you the answer and uh, you're, you're expected to be sort of satisfied by that. But something that I've found super interesting is like in the ninth grade ancient seminar, reading Plato's dialogues and then talking about color. What, wait, what actually is color? Is it something that is happening inside of me or is it outside of me? And that's a question that perhaps might never occur to a person to ask, but then they realize that it's possible to ask that question and then they become captivated by it. But just being able to ask these really mind-opening questions, even if, you know, some questions of course have answers and other ones you'll just continue, like you said, Mr. Welsh, just pondering for the rest of your life and there's great joy in that. That's a, that's a huge fruit of the classical way that I've observed. Okay, so this does all sound really great, but also perhaps there may be some misconceptions about this this kind of education or some perhaps skepticism about the usefulness of something like this. So maybe we could just address a couple of those. So the first one that comes to mind is um, it's great that you can read and appreciate Homer, but that won't get you a job and that is not going to be useful. Great, you can demonstrate some Euclidean proofs for mathematics, but that's not going to put food on the table. So how would you address that? So we actually get this question a lot. And the more those who have an academic intellectual bent can see the practicality being applied in, for example, when my brother works for, he works for Amazon and when he came through, he was saying they're actually looking for not only someone who can do computer programming, but somebody who can, can also see a bigger picture and be more creative in their problem solving. And so they actually really like students who have a classical background and also a background in the classical languages because it teaches analytical thinking and logic. But beyond that, you know, my husband was a philosophy major and yet he was a pilot and a marine officer. And he always talks about how when you encounter the great ideas, you are learning not only how to problem solve, but you're learning a creative approach to how to look at the world. And so I think that's actually much more valuable than a traditional education that is going to teach you to look for one right answer. And other teaching methodologies do not train your mind as clearly as the classical training does, I think. So when I learned that the, the word for school had this Greek root in skole, which means leisure, it kind of blew my mind because I thought nothing was leisurely about my experience of, <laughs> you know, of school. Uh, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of late nights crying over my math homework, and that didn't seem very leisurely. But particularly as I reflected more 
on the ends of classical education, it started to make more sense to me because someday you will be retired and you won't be working. And what do you do then? And when the bell rings at five o'clock and work is over, what then? You know, what do you do with yourself then? And so I have was reflecting with a colleague the other day that I, even though I've always loved to read, I feel like I didn't really know how to read until I came here and was teaching seminar classes and was engaging with texts on a much deeper and more profound level. And even though I've always loved to read, the depth with which I can now read and enjoy great works of literature and be moved by them and deeply impacted by them is so astronomical. And it, and it gives more meaning and more enjoyment to my life. And I feel that I access deeper parts of myself than I, than I would ever have been able to without that experience. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like your education is for those times when you are alone on a desert island with nothing but your thoughts to keep you company. You know, what, what do you do with that? What is your soul and your mind filled with? And if it's filled with beautiful and true and good things, well, then being on a desert island is no problem. And if it's only filled with ways to solve problems which are artificially presented to you, then, you know, the desert island is a place of despair. But for one who is well-formed, then a desert island might as well, you know, it's just like a paradise because your very self has been so formed as to be, be content, like almost within itself. So that seems to me to be perhaps the most practical use of all to this kind of education. The difficulty is that, number one, the objection is sort of right in a way, but it, it's right, but it misses the point. But it's, mm -hmm. is education for work or is it for leisure, mm -hmm. um, right? And so... Myself, that. being the practical, um, mm -hmm. I do see it. It's training your mind in an analytic... So there's you, because you have the grammar, logic, mm -hmm. rhetoric stage, I see our students approaching problems mm -hmm. that way. They learn the grammar of every subject first, and then you learn the logic and how to analyze it, how to make judgments. And then you proceed to the, the dialogue or the, the rhetoric or the writing. And I just, I see it applying itself in our science fair when the students grapple with a problem and then they're able to use the scientific method, which is, it's, it's actually, it's not a classical methodology, but it's using a proper methodology to analyze a problem. And then they can synthesize it and come out with something creative and that's quite their own. So I just see it as a very practical methodology in the end because it's effective. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that no matter what it is you end up doing in life, you know, no, no matter what kind of job, kind of career, you're always going to have to communicate with people and think through problems and solve them. And they're not going to be presented to you the way that perhaps the textbook does or the, the way that they were in class. They're always going to be new situations. So being able, being able to sort of be, uh, approach problems like this generally and say, okay, how do I look at the problem and... Uh, analyze it down to the principles and regardless of what particular field I'm in that's a, an extremely useful skill and it's something that the students do all the time in seminar whenever they're having these discussions you pose them a difficult question and they they have to uh, take it apart themselves and so it's you're really training them okay when, when we get these difficult things that might seem unsolvable at first how do we analyze them? How do we find the principles? What are they? Do we understand them well? And then how do we apply those principles to the particular concrete situation? So in, in that sense, it's, it's very, very useful. Yeah, and I think also getting down into the distilling things into principles is really something that I've noticed our students doing really well that I know I never did in high school, which was like, you'll pose a question as a teacher and the students immediately are like, well, we need to define the terms. So what do we mean by this, that, and the other thing? And sometimes that's really annoying because you're like, come on, don't we just, we all know. They're trained so well, like we, we actually can't have a conversation about this until 
we all are in agreement about what it is we're actually talking about. I find that very refreshing because I think we have a tendency to just be really quick to jump in with an opinion about something, but our students' ability to proceed gradually, you know, by steps into a problem, like like wading into a pool, you know, one step at a time is really a sign of great wisdom and prudence that I think, as you mentioned, they're going to be conversing and problem solving with other people, no matter what field, what career field they find themselves in. And so I think the people in the workplace who are able to pull in the reins a little bit and say, well, let's make sure we're all on the same page first and do we agree about, you know, even what it is that we're trying to do is extremely helpful. That's an incredible uh, leadership skill that I think our students are developing just by the rightly ordered process of inquiry and problem solving. So let's talk a little bit about technology in our classrooms because Holy Rosary is perhaps a little bit on the, uh, let's say, the cutting edge of a tech-free classroom. We don't allow our students to have really any technology in the classroom. They turn in their cell phones at the beginning of the day. They don't have smartwatches. They don't have tablets. We do have a computer lab, and the teachers have some of their own technology in the classroom for use, but students really are not engaging a lot with technology, and uh, that would seem to put them at a disadvantage in our ever-increasingly ever technological world. So are we not putting them at a disadvantage by not using tech in the classroom? I would disagree that they... It's not that they, they don't use technology casually in the classroom. So they do use it purposefully in their science fair experiments and writing research papers, but we don't allow cell phones, we don't allow tablets or computers in the classroom so that they can engage with the ideas and with one another. And so the fruit of it is beautiful as far as the depth of thought and also the student's ability to engage with one another. And with the teacher. Additionally, my master's thesis was on reading from digital text versus reading from uh, hard copy paper. And you're just allowed to access a deeper part of your brain (laughs) by reading from a text, not off of a computer or a tablet or especially your phone, which has so many distractions. So, but I would, I would argue the point that the students know how to use technology very well. They just know the proper use of it. You know, one of the big benefits of living in the, in the information age is that there is so much, so much information available to us at any time, anywhere. You can Google any kind of question that you might have, but any kind of factual thing. And it's really easy to pull up 100 billion results in just, you know, a half second or whatever. And um, this is really, obviously, extremely useful. You know, people in the old days would never be able to dream, or they might have been able to dream of it, but they certainly would never have been able to... Uh, attained or anything close to it. So it, it really is a marvel and a, and a wonder. But one of the difficulties comes from the fact that you, you have so many results. The fact is that it's while it's true that Google will give you a half billion results for whatever question, it doesn't tell you what's right. It doesn't tell you what's wrong. It, it can present to you uh, all these different opinions, perhaps, especially about some really, you know, the really difficult questions, um, moral questions, philosophical questions. It can present to you many different points of view, but when it comes down to deciding at the end of the day, is this true? Is this false? Or some mixture of those? That's something that you have to do. It's not something that a book can tell you. It's not something that a computer can tell you. And the only way you're going to be able to engage with those questions is by being able to train how to think well, how to think logically, and so on. So that's kind of one of the big benefits of this sort of education, even in a world which has these tools and which are which are wonderful. But being able to train the students' minds to think on their own is is uh, uh, I think it uh, really sets them in the right direction when it comes to 
living in this age. So we, we tested here. I tested in the fifth and sixth grade classroom their reading comprehension with the distractors, which was having a cell phone or a tablet available, and without the distractor. And we used the exact same test. We did the Scantron testing, which they normally do twice a year, and the grade level, the reading comprehension level went down three grade levels um, <laughs> as an average. We had one student whose reading comprehension actually went up, and that's because she waited until the end. She did her uh, reading passage and completed the test and then used it as a reward and her score actually went up but everybody else's went down and the students who had already any type of reading disability or, or ESL learners theirs went down dramatically some of them went down from fifth grade reading level to a second grade reading level it's quite dramatic <laughs> I think that many parents you know understand the difficulty that say cell phones for example or computers pose is that you know it's very especially if you have a teenager it's very difficult to get them to to give these things up when it's time for dinner or whatever it is um and so of course you know we teachers have the same struggle at school that these things end up being very very distracting and even if even if the kids are well-meaning about it if the student has their cell phone in their pocket then they're getting notifications from you know whatever kind of app or social media they're constantly being pulled out of the classroom over and over and again and, and then, of course, you know, there's all kinds of other issues if they take their phone out and they're using it and to, to send to send things to their friends or whatever. So we, we find that it's just a lot easier and a lot very helpful for the students to simply not have the phones on them during the school day. So they turn them at the beginning and then they pick them up at the end of the day. And this just allows them to be present in the classroom as much as possible. And it builds a habit in them and they can see that, you know, I can, I can really focus in a way that I might not be able to if I'm if I'm with my phone constantly, my friends are texting me or something. So it ends up being a, a great help. And I think the same thing can be said for, you know, computing, other kinds of computing devices. So Yeah, I think that having, not having the distraction, of course, yeah, helps them focus more. And then, but I also think that, at least in my own experience, having a phone in my pocket has also robbed me of a really good experience, which is that of being bored. Because when you're bored, you maybe start to think interesting thoughts or have an interesting idea or you daydream. And when you have a, a screen in your pocket to, to look at, any moment that you're bored or any moment that, oh, I don't know, you feel awkward, you don't know what else to do with your hands, uh, pull out your phone, it, it really robs you and your your mind of this, uh, of its kind of creative capacity because you're just going sort of catatonic, like, let me just uh, put something into my, into my eyes. And so I really love that students still have the capacity to be bored because there's a lot of uh, creative energy that comes out of boredom. I appreciate right. that. It's, it's, it's very important for them to develop a habit of directing their thoughts uh, towards what they ought and so on. So, yeah, I, I agree. I also think it helps them form deep and authentic friendships. You notice at the lunch table, and they're, they're able to engage with one another and be silly and to laugh, but then also to be quiet, and, and there's not a constant sort of frenetic energy in the student body, which is lovely, too. So maybe just as a last point, we're here in Alaska trying to do this classical thing, uh, having kids reading Plato and Homer and you know doing Euclidean geometry and all these uh, these very wonderful things, which at, can, at times can feel maybe sort of removed from our immediate experience of wilderness here in Alaska. What are some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that come from trying to do this sort of thing in this sort of place? So I grew up in Washington, D.C., and there we just had a plethora of museums, and we would go um, listen to the National Symphony Orchestra, and we'd go to the Kennedy Center, and we'd see Dustin Hoffman playing in Death of a Salesman, and just, you know, amazing, beautiful cultural events. So here we have the majesty of nature, and we are trying to incorporate that, and that fits in very well with our classical curriculum. But we also have kind of the spectrum of humanity 
and um, I think it does help you take some of that beauty that you're reading about in literature or even the principles of government and you can see it being applied and our statehood is only from 1950 so some of our board members are you know participated in the early statehood of um, Alaska so you can see the principles being applied but there are some disadvantages and I think that makes the education even more important because the wilderness can be harsh and it can be brutal oh and there's that beautiful line from to build a fire where Jack London says he did not understand what it meant to be 70 below zero and I feel like like our somehow our students can understand that depth of you know the reality that they're at through reading the great literature and so sometimes it's actually even more important in a place like here. Well that's a wrap on our first episode of the first season of The Outpost. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be talking with parents about their experience of Holy Rosary and the great fruits that it's borne in their children's lives. We'll see you next time. I'll